Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. I mean, they always have a big mouth. They always talk a lot. So it happened before. It's going to happen again. Welcome to another episode of Fantastic Tennis, where the fans get to know their favorite pros. I'm your host, John Garica. Each week, I'm joined by a major fan of the sport that, like most of us, love to talk, follow, play, and give their unsolicited opinions about the sport we all love. And to help balance that out, we're always joined by an expert of the game that has been there and knows exactly what it feels like to win those big matches. We get to pick their brain and ask all the questions we've always wanted to ask our favorite players. This is Fantastic Tennis. This week's fan guest is a great friend of mine from Indianapolis, Indiana. As a reporter for Tennis.com and Tennis Magazine, he's made a living being able to write and talk about tennis, which is kind of a tennis fan's dream. Currently on the board of directors for our guest's charity, Entourage for Kids, it's no wonder why he thinks our guest today is so fantastic. It's my buddy, Jonathan Scott. Jonathan, a big Hoosier welcome to you today. (laughs) Thank you. We're known for Hoosier hospitality, so thank you. Of course. Let's bring out your doubles partner for today. You ready? Our player guest today really loves gearing up for this part of the tennis season as he is the reigning 2020 Australian Open doubles champion with partner Joe Salisbury. A veteran of the sport with two ATP singles titles and 20 ATP doubles titles, he knows what it takes to be the world's best as he achieved a career-high ranking of five in the world back in February of 2020. He owns the 2019 Australian Open mixed doubles title, as well as an Olympic silver medal from the 2016 Games in Rio with his legendary partner, Venus Williams. And this upcoming season, he begins his quest for title number 21 in 2021, our guest today is Rajiv Ram. Rajiv, thanks for joining today. Yeah, thanks for having me. That was clever too. I like that. I thanks. I, yeah, that's the least I can do for your that, that <laughs> career. We're completing that trifecta of Zoom America tonight. You're on the West Coast. I'm in the East Coast. Jonathan's in the Midwest. So thanks for joining tonight. Here we go. Let's do it. Very good. All right. Before we start today, I just want to ask how we're doing during the COVID break. Are you doing okay? The family's doing okay. For me, yeah, we're we're all doing all right. It's just obviously tricky, um, tricky times. You know, we didn't have Thanksgiving as normal, which was really weird for us because it's usually a pretty big. Well, for me especially because it kind of signifies the end of the tennis season, and then I quite enjoy that. But um, you know, it is what it is. There's a lot of people having to make adjustments, and and we're no different. Um, happy that we got some tennis in for sure last year in 2020 because it it uh, it was definitely looking grim for a while there. Absolutely. You know, keep wearing those masks, everybody. Hopefully we're, we're gearing up for this 2021 season. Hopefully it's, we see a little more tennis than we did last year. All right, team, before we jump into Raj's career, I'd like to start the pod today with my favorite way to start any service game. 15 love. And that's 15 love. It's a super simple game. I'm going to throw 15 questions at you, Rajiv. You just respond as quickly as you can with the first thing that pops into your mind. Okay. All right. We ready? All right. Question number one. Name the first professional match you remember watching live or on television. On television, it was the 1986 Wimbledon final. Boris Becker defeated Yvonne Lindell. I love that you knew right away. Well, that was like that memory was. Imp- it was the match that got me playing tennis. So it's I'm never going to forget that. 
Wow. All right. I want to investigate that a little later. Number two, a lesson that one of your first coaches taught you that you've never forgotten. Um, that I'm not, it was my first coach was my dad and I, I'm, I can do anything I want, but I'm not allowed to break my racket on the court. All right. Or throw my racket. There we go. Number three, first tennis idol growing up or who was your tennis idol growing up? Well, it kind of goes back to the first question, but seeing that Boris Becker won that match, he was the first, my first tennis hero. Which makes sense with the awesome volley. So I get that totally. <laughs> question number four, first word that pops into your head when I say the name Brian Brothers. Uh, goats. Yeah, absolutely. Question five, something people listening today probably don't know about you. I played more golf than tennis during the pandemic. <laughs> well, question seven, we've heard you're a great golfer. Who would you say is the best golfer on the ATP tour? Great is an incredible stretch. I'm, I'm not even good, but the best golfer that I've seen as a tennis player would be Marty Fish. There we go. Number six, name someone you've played with or against that has the fastest reflex volley. Um, Marcelo Mello would be my pick for the best reflex volley on tour right now. All right. Mello yellow. Number eight, someone you'd like to play doubles or mix with that you haven't yet. Uh, I'd love to play doubles with Roger Federer. He's always the name that pops up. I, it's so strange. Yeah, I've barely heard I of him. Know. I don't even know who this guy is. Like <laughs> I need to Google his, who this is. I Roger Fed Federer. So you said, yeah. okay. <laughs> Other than Jonathan, obviously. Jonathan, yeah. Oh, oh, wow. That's okay. That's that's a lie. Raj has seen my serve. <laughs> Number nine, speaking of doubles partners, name a partner you've had over the years that has kept you laughing the most on court. Um, hmm. When I played, when I first started playing challengers, Bobby Reynolds and I used to play. He's now the coach at the University of Auburn. And he used to, we used to play quite a lot. And uh, probably didn't take doubles maybe as seriously I say that with the, you know, with a little bit of hesitation, but singles was our priority at the time. So we had quite a lot of fun playing together. <laughs> Bobby Reynolds. All right. It wasn't my only for, uh, source of income. Let's say that. So <laughs> understood. Understood. Number 10. If you had the power to change anything or a rule in pro tennis, what would you pick? I would pick that fans would be allowed to come into stadiums, not only on changeovers. Like they would be allowed to come in because I think it's, I think we see tennis from the player's perspective so much and it's, from the fans' perspective, that's like the worst thing ever. You you come to a, a, a court and it's zero zero fifteen love, and you got to wait three games to, to actually go sit down. That's terrible. I love that you know that though. That's a fan plight, not a player plight. That's like something that we struggle. No, yeah, we have it pretty good. We we have it pretty good. That's terrible for the fans. But then you always have the people that walk in and they stop. And like it's just you're telling me it's like it's a little. You mean like from uh, from players we stop? Yeah, players because yeah. we know that they're not supposed to come. Uh -huh. yeah, I, I'm absolutely an offender of that. I know that you're not supposed to come, so I'm going to stop. But if I know that you're allowed to come, totally cool. And I think that should be a rule change. But you knew right away what rule you wanted to change. Yeah. Absolutely. This is good rapid fire today. I'm very impressed. All right. Question number 11. You get one doubles loss or singles loss from your career to turn into a win instead. Which do you pick? The gold medal match. In that's an easy one. Do you have a singles one? That's an easy one. Yeah, the finals of uh, Delray Beach in 2016 also. Title number three, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and yeah, one on hard court and, and a third title would have been nice. Number 12, in your opinion, the best current doubles player without a Grand Slam? Wow, that's a good question. Uh, we're talking men only or we're we talking anyone? I said doubles player. Absolutely. Up to you. Oh gosh, you know, I, I'm not trying to leave the women out. I, I just don't have enough knowledge there. So I'm going to keep it to the ATP guys because obviously I, I know that arena. Um, I'm going to say one of my old partners, Raven Clausen. 
Yeah. Sounds good. Number 13, we're going to talk about Raven, I'm sure, a lot today. Those, you guys had some great wins. Question 13, describe yourself off court in one word. Laid back. Or that's two words, but you know what I mean. Hey, no, it, we'll, we'll hyphenate <laughs> it for fun today. Yeah, we'll just, uh, question 14, looking forward to next year. What is your number one goal for the 2021 tennis season? Win another Grand Slam. Yeah. I love that goal, right? Yeah, absolutely. Question 15, once you retire in about 10 or 15 years, <laughs> what do you want to be remembered for? Um, I would want to be remembered for somebody that tried everything to be the best they could be. All right, we're done. Thanks. Thanks for indulging me in tennis therapy tonight. You did great. (laughs) Really nice. Before we jump into your amazing career, I'd like to talk a little off season. Australian Open is upon us. Very interested to know how the progress is going. Are we happy with where we're at at this point in the season? Look, I mean, I got to say they've done a massive undertaking just to be able to stage the event considering the regulations they have with the government and stuff down there. So the fact that they even have a plan in place, I think is a pretty good effort. I think there's still a lot of details that are yet to be determined, but you know, hats off to, uh, to my old friend, Craig Tiley for being able to, you know, put this even attempt to even put this together, given all those challenges they have. For sure. Yeah. This is such a, such a funny setup. Uh, just because Craig was Raj's coach at Illinois, won NCAAs. Now they're just Aussie friends and Raj has done so well there. Well, I feel like he's going to get the inside scoop all the time too. I mean, this is great. <laughs> this is good inside information. Raj, as far as your progress goes, this is, as we mentioned earlier, this is a big part of the season for you. The past two years you've gone in winning a Grand Slam in Australia. Are you happy with the progress in your off season thus far? Yeah, it's been strange because, you know, we had sort of a big break, obviously, during the pandemic. And now we had a two month off season, which is, you know, different compared to our one month off season, really. I mean, it's really, you know, our first term is going to start February 1st instead of January 1st. So, it, yeah, it, I'm happy with it. I took a bit of a longer break, to be very honest with you, than um, than anything else. I just took a month off of not doing a whole lot and kind of chilling out and um, and then kind of got back into training. So my, my training hasn't really been much longer. I just had a little bit of longer break. So you got to vacation. You got to enjoy a little bit of off season. Well, yeah, vacation as much as you can during COVID. But yeah, just not straight up feel like you got to start, you know, in the gym and on the court right away after our last tournament. You've been playing for many years now. We won't say how many. We'll just cough. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll, but uh, as far as a routine, are, do you have a set? Are you the player that has the set routine, or are you mixing things up in your training sessions in the off season? Are you are you trying to uh, figure out new ways to kind of stay on top of things, or is it just kind of like you know, let's just do it as we've always have? I think it's it's ever changing as you get older. There are things that you need to to sort of do more of, and there's things you need to do less of for sure. I do stay. I'm a creature of habit to a certain extent. I think maybe most tennis players would say that. So I, I definitely stick to a certain routine, but I add and subtract as needed. Let's just say. I don't know about you, but I have been loving these announcements every day about these pairings of these training partners that we're going to see <laughs> yeah. in Australia. And everyone knows, obviously, there's new sanctioning. We just talked about it for this year. They're self-quarantining. Australia has limited the amount of players that people can have uh, during the two weeks. Jonathan and I were talking before you logged on. It sounds very amazing race to me. These new pairings. It's just like uh, it's Hunger Games almost. You know, it's these two players or four players that are going to be together for two weeks. You have Nadal and Stan Wawrinka training together. Djokovic and team Madison Keys and Jen Brady are doing uh, some training together as well. I'm assuming you're paired with Joe Salisbury. You would assume correctly. Okay, good. Did, uh, did for you- the first week, for the first week at least, and then for the second week, we get to pick another team. Obviously, yeah. Are we making so. that announcement now? We can. <laughs> we we can make that announcement. You can be exclusive. Um, no. Uh, yeah. Uh, Freddie Nielsen, who's a Danish player, who's been on tour for a long time, and good friend of Joe's. Actually, I think Joe made 
his first kind of big Grand Slam run with Freddie at Wimbledon a couple of years ago. Um, so Freddie asked Joe, I honestly didn't think this was going to be that big of a deal for everybody else, but Freddie asked Joe a couple of weeks ago and he was the only one that asked. So we said, sure. <laughs> Okay, I, you played World Team Tennis this summer, so it's it's like a fraternity now. People are very selective about who they're going to spend their two weeks with. I get it, totally. Yes, uh, yeah. Who can we expect you to win the mixed title with this year? Uh, I'm actually playing with Barbara again, the same girl that I played yeah. uh, played with last time we won it. So let's do it. I mean, she was the former number one in the world as well. I mean, we're we're good. She was, and she's actually she's actually stepped up quite a lot in singles. I don't know what her singles ranking is, but I think she's um, inside the top hundred for sure, and she's had a, a great little run. So. And the only reason in 2020, Raj, that you didn't defend your title with her in Australia was because she wasn't able to compete, right? In 2020? No, I was, I actually got a little sick at the end of 2019. And so I decided not to play mixed in Australia just because of that. And um, we had a couple of opportunities actually at the French, she got sick. So we could, we were supposed to play there in 2019. And so we couldn't play Wimbledon. I was never going to play because we, we play three out of five in men's doubles and it's just a bit long and all that. And 2019 us open, what happened? Oh, she broke her foot. Yeah. She got hurt at the us open in qualities. So we were supposed to play there too. And, and, and I didn't play, I ended up playing there. Either. I ended up playing with Sam Stozer because she, uh, she couldn't play. And that was a last minute thing. And then 2020 semifinal run. I mean, still, I mean, yeah. you can win with everybody. I love yeah. it. That's great. But I'm glad to see you back with Barbara. I would love a second time. This is going to be exciting for sure. I would love it too. That would be a lot of fun. She's number seven in doubles and 65 in singles now. Just 65. That's so, that's so awesome for her. I'm, I'm, I didn't know that she was that high. I knew she did well, but I didn't know she was at 65. That's great. We first saw you at world team tennis in Greenbrier in the COVID era. Then it was off for your first COVID era bubble in New York. Uh, it, was it weird entering that first bubble? super weird. I mean, we've never had anything like that. You, you're staying in Long Island for the U.S. Open. You know, they totally changed the facility. You, you, you can't go anywhere. I mean, I got to say the USTA did a phenomenal job. Of, you know, they had food trucks for us in the evenings and they, they brought in different people and tried to make it as sort of comfortable as possible. They had like this whole outdoor dining area set up, but it was super weird. I mean, you know, you, nobody in the locker room, nobody in the stands, nobody, nobody anywhere in, in New York City. The whole thing was just right, strange. You adapted well. You made the semis of both uh, both events. Fantastic. Well done to you. Congrats on a great ATP finals as well. You closed the year with another strong semifinal show. Oh, yeah. That was a stinger that we lost that last one. <laughs> yeah. To end the season, you were a few points away from becoming the number one doubles yeah. team in the world. But huge kudos to you both. You had a phenomenal season. Very consistent. Jonathan, I know you were excited because you were texting me before that semifinal match thinking that you know, Raj could get <laughs> you to turn your TV on. Yeah, I could get to number one. What's your take on on Rajiv's success this season? I mean, it's just fantastic with such an abbreviated season in 2020 and everybody having to pivot in so many different ways. Tennis, like basketball and others, is such a sport of pivoting anyway and so many changes of direction. And everybody probably just felt like they were contorted with their bodies. Just what day to day, week to week is the news going to be about what public health is and what you can do on a tennis court in a sanctioned faction. Um, so that was just incredible to end the season that way. I know it was, like you said, a stinger in the semifinal of the finals, but you've been to that final before uh, as well and have a great future in the finals also, even if it's not in the O2 arena after this last year. But you had to be happy, Raj, with your season, right? You look back and it, you're giving a thumbs up to the year. 
Yeah, I mean, look, we 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 had two goals at the beginning of the year. I'll be honest, we had, we had a goal to win a major, and we had a goal to finish the year number one. Obviously, we were a couple points away from from doing that, but uh, nobody expected, you know, the sort of interruption or 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 the kind of sanctions that we had going into it. And um, I'm not saying we would have been number one for sure had we had a quote unquote normal season, but uh, the fact that you know we we were able to accomplish one of those goals and then you know really kind of hold that number one spot for the entire year, except for literally the last match, uh, we're pretty proud of that. So. It was a great start. It was a great finish. So well done to you, Jonathan. I'd like to ask you a couple questions about your tennis, your background. You're from Indianapolis, Indiana. You play tennis as well recreationally. I know you're a big fan of the sport. What was it about Rajiv and his game that really resonated with you when you kind of first started following him? Well, you know, I was such a baseliner when I started out playing, picked up a racket sophomore year of high school and joined the JV team as an upperclassman as a junior and then got a varsity letter in Warsaw, Indiana, of all places, with a really stacked team of nine seniors, managed to get a some doubles action there. But what I admire about Raj is that, and just having witnessed him and his parents together too, is that he was never pushed so much into tennis. It was tennis was there if he wanted to do the tennis and not those athletic parents you see in some high school settings across all of the sports. And so that was really inspiring. But then being a baseliner at the outset to take one, some classes, some individual and group lessons at Butler University from some of the coaches there, but to watch Raj also and how he would methodically move forward to the net. I just want to like start every point at the net now. I wish I could serve from the service line to the other side. It just looks so easy. You yeah. make it look so easy. I love life at the net. And <laughs> that's a large part of that is like watching his volleys, watching a lot of that Rio action with Venus and with Raj and also a lot of the other partners he's had. Uh, Raven. I mean, a lot of those volleys, you're like, well, that's so Raven. Uh, There's not much else to say about that. Right. I agree. Uh, Jonathan, I know you sit on the board of Rajiv's charity Entourage for Kids. Such a great organization. Really, really great after doing my research. Uh, Rajiv, can you tell us a little bit about what your charity does? Yeah, so we, uh, we, we've we had a couple, I'm not going to say a couple different missions, we've had a couple ways of going about it over the past 10 or so years, but um, really for, for me, the biggest thing is trying to give, trying to make tennis an option for kids that maybe don't have that option, you know, and that could choose other more destructive, you know, less productive paths, albeit after school or whatever. So one of the coolest things I think we do is, is give grants to high schools um, in the area that don't have the funds to maybe have a high school tennis team, you know, so whether obviously we don't have the facility to fund the entire, uh, you know, the entirety of, of a high school tennis team, but if we can help out with something here or there, that's really cool for us. The other thing is I got a lot of support as a kid, you know, from the Midwest um, and being a high performance tennis player and all that stuff. And you know, there's a few, there's been a few over the years that have been in my shoes, that kind of level of junior tennis that maybe haven't been able to have the money to go play junior grand slams or or travel to all the tournaments that, and basically meet all the needs that high performance tennis financially requires. And so we also basically, we double a a grant that's already given by the Midwest one that I received as a kid. So one, another kid gets the same grant that has the same qualifications that the Midwest organization, Midwest section gives out. Wow. At the end, we'll give that website. If anyone wants to donate, it's such a great cause really, really is. Congratulations. All right, guys, you guys ready for a game? Sure. All right, always, yeah. I'd love to play a game called I 40 Love You. It's going to be Jonathan versus Rajiv in a fan versus favorite tennis match trivia showdown all about Raj's career and life. Wow. Jonathan, I'm going to give you uh, two questions about Raj's career, 
And then Raj, I'll ask you two questions that test how extensive your memory RAM is. Okay. <laughs> if we happen to end up in a 2-2 tie, I'm going to give Jonathan the opportunity right now to be today's champion, but only if he can survive this first question. Otherwise, the tie break goes to Raj. This game is called True or Fault. <laughs> Jonathan, you've heard this show. You know what you have to do. This All is right. an early test of your fandom to Team Rom. So good luck to you. I'm going to give you three statements about Rajiv. If the statement is true, you just say true. If the statement is not correct, please firmly say fault in your best Wimbledon's line person's voice. You'll need two out of three of these to win the tiebreak. All right, you ready? Yeah, absolutely. All right, true or fault, Rajiv's last junior singles match was at Wimbledon in 2002, where he played against Joe Wilfried Songa. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Uh, I mean, true. Because he gave it away with a laugh. Is that why? No, just that's so esoteric. <laughs> How could it not be true? Right? I wish I would have said Roger Federer. That would have been great. What a, what a lie that would have been, right? I mean, obviously, you remember that match, Raj. So great. I'm not ready for Sangha to retire, by the way. I hope we haven't seen the last of him for sure. He's so great. You did get to the doubles final that year, though. That's a big year for you, right? You could say you're a Wimbledon finalist in juniors. You must have left that tournament with like your head swollen right do you remember that event <laughs> i do that was yeah that was my only time playing wimbledon juniors i played joe in the second round i had never i didn't know who he was and, and never seen him before and remember coming off the court thinking i'd never seen an, a, an athlete like that on the tennis court i really do remember that I, I i remember thinking like i played pretty well and i lost i think i can't remember what the score was it was you know straight sets but it was a close match and just remember thinking that I'd never seen someone be that athletic at that age, at 18 years old or whatever we were, 17, 18, I can't remember, on, on a tennis court, you know. But then, yeah, played doubles with my, my good friend, Brian Baker. We played quite a lot growing up, and we ended up making the finals, and we lost to two Romanians, Horia Takao and Florin Merge. I do remember that. And then one of the coolest things, I will say, is that we got to go to the Wimbledon Ball that, that year. Oh, you did? Yeah. Uh, that was that was pretty neat. Leighton Hewitt won the men's, and uh, yeah, I, I haven't been back since. I, I'd love to go try and go back again this year, but I never I haven't been back since. So, man, that's so awesome! What a great memory, Jonathan. Your first Wimbledon title. You want to tell that story? No, we're not. Okay, no. We're not. <laughs> I mean, I had a great long dance with Steffi Groff. Leighton. It was Steffi Groff. It was a while ago. It was yeah. It was a while. The ball was fantastic. All right, we're on a roll. Question number two: True or false? Rajiv's first Grand Slam final was the 2016 Australian Open mixed final with partner Coco Vandeweghe. Uh, that is true. Raj, is that true or false? I think I, I know it's false, but I, I feel like Jonathan knows this, but he just got a little, he probably there was a right partner, wrong tournament. <laughs> it doesn't feel right, but I couldn't remember what else it would be. <laughs> I know. What a jerk. I'm a, such a jerk. It felt right, but it was a little bit wrong. Yes, you're right. It was, it's, it's fault. Unfortunately, you didn't get this one right, but you still have a shot. It was the U S open that he got to the finals of not Australia. It's just, we're just so used to saying that he's in the final of the Australian open. So that's what it was. Oh, I thought it was, I thought you said that I even heard 2016 U S open. I didn't even hear Australia. Yeah. I, I had a feeling that he, there was a miscommunication there. <laughs> Raj, 2016, you were on a mixed doubles tear. You get to the finals of the Olympics, which we're going to talk about soon. A tear of losing in the finals of mixed doubles tournaments. <laughs> but you followed up with that big run in New York. Coco's been on the show. She's the best. How did that partnership with Coco Vandeweghe come about? Yeah, Coco's awesome. She, uh, We were actually, because I didn't know until the last minute, or I don't think anyone knew that Venus wanted to play mixed with the Olympics. 
because uh, she was playing singles and doubles. And I think she, I think if I remember correctly, she lost maybe in singles early and then decided she wanted to play. So obviously, you know, that, that worked out for everybody. But Coco and I were talking about playing if she wasn't going to play in the Olympics. And so when that didn't work out, yeah, the U.S. Open was just around the corner. So we were like, oh, hey, you want to, you know, give it a run there? And uh, that was that. So there we, we go. We played great. I don't put a great match in one of the earlier rounds against Pays and Hingis. That uh, it was, a, it was a pretty fun one. Oh yeah, that's a classic. We talked about that match. Yeah, that's. She thinks you're a cool guy, so I, I like that. It's the feeling is mutual. Yeah, we played a little golf this year at the Greenbrier too at Team Penn. She's a heck of a golfer. She's a great coach. golfer. She's a great golfer. Yeah. I love this subset of tennis players as golfers. I've tried to play, and I have a terrible swing. I can't do it. So it's you know, um, it's over my head. Coco was on John's trivia show earlier this last. COVID era year and described your volleys, Raj. I think I texted you later as your volleys are very dirty. Yeah, yeah I remember you saying that. <laughs> dirty volleys. Yeah. She likes dirty volleys and dirty martinis. So that's, I like <laughs> a girl after my own heart. All right. True or fault. You still can win this tie break with this one, Jonathan. Speaking of Coco Vandeweghe, Rajiv team with Coco again at World Team Tennis this past season to lead the New York Empire to the title for the first time in their franchise history. Oh, I mean, true. She she hit the last shot. True. Raj, is that true or fault? I think he got. I think I think the play on words got him again because we. <laughs> it was the New York. No, the Chicago's the Chicago team. Honestly, I don't feel bad for you now after that last one. I mean, maybe I was feeling a little guilty after the second one with the play on words, but after the third one, you knew it was coming, Jonathan. Chicago smash, not the Empire. Yeah, but Coco played for them, and she hit the winning shot against us in the final. She did. Let's talk about it, Raj. You won the tiebreak, which is going to come in handy in a minute, but you actually played against. Coco in that final for the Chicago smash that final day was insane one of the most exciting finals in the history of world team tennis for sure CBS reported that it was their highest rated season for world team tennis in tennis history so that's a great sign for tennis I would say for sure what did you like about playing world team tennis um well, I've played team tennis before. I played for the San Diego Aviators in 2017. Another team, funnily enough, Coco played for. And look, you know, tennis is, we, we play individually all the time. I mean, okay, doubles, you play with a teammate, but it's still kind of for yourself, if you will. You know, team tennis, you know, Davis Cup, Olympics, college tennis, high school tennis, and, and team tennis. It, it's it's so cool in these settings when you get to play for a, a bigger you know, team or a city or what, what have you, or a country or whatever. So um, I think team tennis is awesome. It was really neat how they put it together this year to be only in one location because we couldn't travel because it was right in the middle of kind of the whole lockdown the first deal with it and then the final just coming down to we were up by a bunch and then you know it kind of slowly got away from us a little bit and it got to the very very end and sloan hit an ace to save the first match point and then the second match point she had another great serve and i mean coco just yeah she did did what coco does and whacked a winner ripped it Oh, it was killer. It was great to watch. Did you make friends this season? You had a great team. You had Sloan on your team, Bethany Maddock, Brandon Nakashima, Eugenie Bouchard. Really, I mean, all-star team there, right? Yeah, yeah. I've actually known Bethany since we were really young. We uh, we, we grew up together a little bit in Wisconsin, and we played some tennis together as like 11 and 12-year-olds or whatever she is, maybe 10 and 11-year-olds. So I've known Bethany for my whole tennis life, more or less. Sloan was on the Olympic team. I got to know her. So yeah, Jeannie, I didn't know at all. She was, she was really, um, it was neat to get to know her. Her mom and her family came out a bit. And then Brandon, I would never have probably come in contact with him, you know, had it not been for team tennis. He's so much younger than me, but what a absolute stud. That guy's going to be a heck of a player. So it was fun to watch him play and, and get to know him, although it's pretty tough because he doesn't say much, but he's a super nice guy. He looks played, quiet. We played golf together a couple of times. Yeah. So yeah, that was fun. 
American tennis is looking bright with Brandon. Yeah. All right. Well, Raj, you win the tie break, but the game is not over, Jonathan. <laughs> We're going to start right now. It's question one. You still can win this. Raj, the first question is for you, though. It gets a little harder. Before turning pro, you would attend the University of Illinois and help the Fighting Illini win their first and so far only NCAA title in 2003. That is true. Is that the question? <laughs> Not. You're going to keep going. Yeah. This is your life. So yeah, that they should know this, right? That same year, Raj, your teammate Amir Delic would win the NCAA Division I singles title and a future doubles partner of yours and someone you share an ATP title with would go on to win the Division III NCAA singles title for Gustavus Adolphus College in Minnesota. Which future partner shares a 2003 collegiate connection with you? I know this one. It's a guy by the name of Eric Buderak. Well done. Which, coincidentally, before he went to Gustavus, he went to Ball State, which is uh, in our neck of the woods. Yeah, my alma mater. I love that you share this. You're killing it today, Raj. I like it. You're, you, you can't lose, man. Eric ended up being one of your first successful doubles partnerships. You won two titles with him back in 2009. One of those being in Chennai for your first ATP doubles title. Yeah. Beating Stan Wawrinka in the final, yeah. right? It's pretty amazing. That must have been a great moment for you. What's that first title feeling like? Yeah, it was really cool for sure. Uh, yeah, like you said, Eric um, had had some pretty good success before that. And um, we, we played together a little bit. And, you know, obviously, as a kid, whatever you, you play, you, you think about winning tournaments on you know the main tour and don't really know if it's ever going to happen. Right. And so just to, to be able to win my first one. And then it was a bit a bit more sweet just because my family's from India. Um, I'm a first generation American, but you know, a lot of my family there that I don't actually get to see very much because we live over here was actually at that tournament. So, um, wow. Just a, it's a whole neat experience in, in all for sure. I love that story. It's so great hearing this next question. I always love it, especially I think it's interesting for tennis fans like Jonathan and I to hear the journey of how someone like you, a great champion, a Grand Slam champion, world champion like yourself, um, gets their start in tennis. I know your parents had a huge influence on your career as well. Do you mind telling us your tennis journey? Yeah. Um, so I guess it was a bit unique in the sense that well, unique from the standpoint of the people that become professionals and, and do it for a long time usually are, you know, quite active in the sport in a, in a young age as far as how competitive they are and how much how seriously they take it. And I'm not going to say I didn't take it seriously, but, you know, my tennis was was a, a father-son activity that turned into my job, really, at the end of the day. I played a lot of sports when I was a kid. I'm an only child that was always wanting to be outside rather than inside. And tennis, for some reason, just was one that I did a little bit better than the other ones. So my dad would come home from work every day and would take me to the court and it would be like our thing that we would do. And then... Uh, it slowly turned into, okay, we moved to Indiana when I was 12 and started to actually play some tournaments and started to, to win a little bit. And it still wasn't like, oh my gosh, you're going to make a career out of this until I was, you know, maybe late, a lot later, 16, 17 years old, which is pretty late for a, for a tennis player, you know? Um, before that, it was okay. Yeah, keep playing, enjoy it, have fun. Maybe you go to a, a better school than you would have. Maybe it opened some doors that way. But the, the best part about it and the, the reason I really think that I'm still very much enjoying what I do at 36 and you know, be 37 in March um, is because I was never pushed. No, no one told me I had to. It's always my thing. If I wanted to quit tomorrow, if I wanted to quit 10 years ago, you know, no, nobody was going to tell me that that was the wrong decision. And everything that I put into it w was, uh, was on me. And I think that's something that uh, I am super grateful for. I didn't really realize it at the time, but now that we're in our thirties and, you know, getting to be late thirties, I talked to a lot of my friends that, you know, I grew up playing tennis with and they just talk about how miserable of an experience junior tennis was, you know, 
I had no idea. I, I was always thought that everyone was like me, like they loved going to tournaments and loved playing and practice was fun. And the minute you don't want to practice, you just don't. And that was just wasn't the case. And so I think, uh, you know, it's something that I, I am really grateful for. And I think it'll allow me to enjoy this sport for a long time, even well after it, you know, stops becoming my job. I love hearing that. I love that you kind of made your own rules and and your parents let you have your own rules pretty much about what you wanted to do. You were such a great junior. We talked a lot about your accolades. Obviously that junior Wimbledon was a great highlight for you. You talked about a little bit of the pressure of maybe 16 or 17, you started feeling like, all right, am I, am I going to make this a career? Did you feel the pressure at that point to maybe up your ante, see what's going to happen next? Is that when it kind of started, you know, it's now or never kind of situation or was college really the main focus at that point? You know, I don't say I, I felt more pressure. Any pressure that I felt was self-inflicted as far as just wanting to be better and wanting to continue to get better. I always, I wasn't good enough flat out. I wasn't good enough to turn pro at 18. I don't think I was. And in fact, if you, if I'm being honest, I would say that if I could do it again, I probably would have stayed in school another year past when I did. It was just that at that time, tennis career seemed to seem to end about 30 and I was 19 real close to 20 when I turned pro. And I was like, well, I better kind of start this now or else it's just, you know, it felt like time was ticking, but it felt like there was more of an end. Now, if you told me back then, Hey, at 36, you're still going to be playing just fine. I would have probably stayed a bit longer. So I wouldn't say there was pressure, but I did feel at that point that the decisions I was going to make for the for the foreseeable future were going to be about how I was going to get the best out of my tennis, if that makes sense. So that was a bit of a shift. Makes complete sense. Those first few years on the ITF tour, looking back, you know, it's a struggle for a lot of people. You yourself, you put in a lot of work. You traveled to a lot of cities. A lot of people listening don't really know the tough road that players like yourself and, and players that are playing today really have to face to make a living on the tour, consistently winning. What were those first few years like on the ITF tour for you? Probably the toughest of my tennis career, I would say. You know, I turned pro in 2004. And I didn't break the top 100 until 2009. So, I mean, I had five good years there, four and a half good years there where it was like, okay, you're playing only challengers or, or maybe even futures for the first little bit. And for anyone that doesn't know, it's, it's not the life that you see on the TV. To be honest with you, the life that you see on the TV is really only what a, a, a very select few have. You know, e- even if you're playing US Open and you're a main draw player for however many years, it's not, you're not Roger Federer necessarily. So... The challenges and futures are, are certainly not, you know, they're, they're even a step lower than that when it comes to that kind of thing. So you, you have to, you have to grind, you have to, you have to hustle and you have to, for me, it's, you really tested to see, do you really like doing this or are you in it for maybe the wrong reason? It's sort of like, it's sort of like med school, right? Like, you know, people say, oh, if you're a doctor after 20 years and you're making a ton of money because you're a great doctor, but like everyone goes through the, the, the tough hours, the rotations, the, you know, all, all of that kind of stuff that really weed out the people that want to do it for the right reasons. That's sort of what like our, our futures and challenges are, you know? By 2007, you'd won five ITF tournaments. You make your first Wimbledon quarterfinal, huge result, you know, obviously after playing the tour for a while, it didn't take you very long to get in the top 100 and doubles. I think you ended that year around 62 or so. And in, in 2007, which- I wouldn't have known that if you had got me with that question, I wouldn't have known that. So <laughs> <laughs> note, note to self when we do part two of this in one year, your first success was doubles, but you also showed a lot of prowess in your singles game as well. So let's go on to question number two, Jonathan, you ready to get on the board? Uh- <laughs> I feel like you're going to get this one though. Let's go into the singles career. Lots of stuff to talk about here. All right. Question two. We all know Rajiv is one of the best, absolute best doubles players in the world, but let's not forget that he also knows his way around a singles court. Raj made it to 56 in the world back in 2016 and has two career titles on his best surface 
grass at the Newport Hall of Fame Championship. So Jonathan, your first question is about Rajiv's singles career. It may be a little challenging, but I think you're a savant like I am. So I feel like there's no trickery with the questions. It's straightforward here. So we're going we're gonna to kill this. I'm ready to start showing what a savant I am. <laughs> All right. Rajiv stopped playing singles full-time in 2070 to concentrate on doubles but not before getting his last singles win on tour at Wimbledon against an up-and-comer that is now the third-ranked American and the current world number 39. Oof. Who did Rajiv get his last win against at Wimbledon in 2017? Tough one there. Do you know this one, Raj? You know this one. I I, I do, but I'm, I'm going to give you a little... Yeah, I do. I do, I do know the, the person you're talking about. Okay, good. All right. It's... He's 39 in the world. Number three American, number 39 in the world. Now. As of today, he's the third ranked American. Who are we thinking? It's okay. It's fine. It's no worries. Roger's used to you getting these wrong at this point. So you're not disappointing him anymore. Yes, this has become standard. <laughs> I'm thinking Sam Query, but how could it be Sam Query? It could be. I mean, he's probably on a plane somewhere. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's not Sam Query, but that's all I can think of because I is nerd. Well, hang on. Before you before you answer that, he he did preface by saying it was at the time an up and coming American. So oh. in 2017, okay. Sam was he was very very established. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, Francis Tiafo. That's a great guess. That's a better guess than Sam Query. But it's not correct. Is it correct, Raj? It's not correct. <laughs> Jack Stock. Let's. Uh, I'll give you. I'll give you another clue. He, this person is vertically gifted. Oh, Riley Opelka. That's the guy. Maybe if you have written these questions, maybe Jonathan would have done a little better tonight. Maybe that would have been. I mean, I don't understand how people who are 6'4", like Raj, and any taller than that, glide around the tennis court and exceed so well like they do. Great win against Riley. Obviously, great American hope for us as well. With Isner towards the end of his career, we're really relying on Riley and Taylor and Francis to be our next American hopes. But Raj, let's talk about your singles career. You have wins against... Rublev on grass in 2016, great win. Dimitrov, Isner, Marty Fish, Diego Schwartzman. You have a lot of great wins in your career. Can we talk about that decision to put the singles career on hold? Was that uh, was that something you thought about for a while? I know you'd start really getting to the, the later weeks of these tournaments. Was that uh, something to preserve your career? Yeah, completely. I mean, it was... It wasn't easy. You know, I, I love playing singles and I played predominantly, you know, that was the priority, let's say for, you know, most, pretty much all of my careers until I stopped playing. But in 2016, I, I played over a hundred matches, singles and doubles. And I just felt like if I had another one of year, those years, that many matches, including singles in, in one season, that, that probably would have been it, to be honest with you, I don't think. And my body was just not able, it wasn't really not able to play the matches, but it wasn't able to keep up with the amount of training that was required to be competitive and to play at the level that I wanted to. I felt like if I did that, I was going to sacrifice my doubles, which I felt like I hadn't quite, I really didn't feel like I had scratched the surface which how, with how good or how, how far I could have taken it, if you will. So I didn't want to leave tennis feeling like, man, I really wish I had put a few years into the doubles to see how far I could get. And that was sort of it. You know, all those things came together and it was staring me in the face, to be honest. Makes complete sense, right? Um, I mean, it's honestly no surprise why grass was such a great surface for you based on your style. Your two titles in Newport, are such a great accomplishment. Let's break down that first title run in 2009 in Newport as a qualifier and the 181st ranked player in the world. Do you remember that crazy week? Yeah, I do. I do. I almost didn't go because I uh, 
I lost a really tough match in a challenge of the week before. And I was a bit just, like I said, it was about year four of being kind of stuck in that challenger level. So I was like, you know what? I just need to get it together. Maybe, you know, train a little bit more before the U S open. I, I literally almost didn't go. Jonathan, I don't know if you know this stat, but I was looking at this and I'm looking and doing this research and I had to read this stat like maybe three or four times. I had to go back. I was like, no, that can't be right. Like I had to look at another, I was like, no, let me find another source. Cause it just didn't make sense. L- let's talk about July 10th, 2009. You have the record. At least it has to be the record Raj. You won four matches in one day, two singles and two doubles. That is beast mode at its finest. Oh yeah. <laughs> you beat Sam Groth, Jesse Levine in singles. Then you pair with Jordan Kerr to win two doubles matches. Two questions. One, how tired were you that week? You won both singles and doubles at that tournament. And two, did it feel really good to be invincible those two that week? I mean, it must've been amazing, right? So what happens when you're 25, you can do things like that. <laughs> Yeah, it was pretty nuts. Actually, that week, there was a bunch of rain in the weekend. And Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, if I remember correctly, was like bright and sunny, but the courts were still so wet from the weekend that you couldn't play on them. So we didn't start the tournament until Thursday. And I think that was that, if I remember right, I think the first round we played on Thursday, maybe that Friday, that second day was when I played all those matches on, you know, on the one day. And yeah, it was, it was crazy. It was almost like you just keep going. And they told me I didn't have to play that fourth one if I didn't want to. And I, I don't know, I was like... I, you know, I'm feeling all right. Like I'd rather just keep going than kind of have to sleep and then think about playing three matches the next day. And if I, I felt like I was playing well enough to get really far in the tournament, I didn't want, you know, an extra match the next day to maybe hamper that or whatever. Cause I was just, it was just sort of like, it was all happening. I was warm and I was, you know, like I said, you, when you're 25, you can do kind of crazy. Are you an ice bath guy, Rush? I am. Yeah. I'm a big water guy. Jonathan, have you had an ice bath? No, and I, I don't think I could stand it. I see Raj, I see Andy Murray and others posting photos of it, and I just don't think it's for some of us. I love that you have to post it, though, because it's just like it seems torturous when you see it. So it, it deserves a post. It is. It is. I got to say, it's, it's, it is unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievably good? It, it's unbelievably effective. Speaking of recovery, I had Donald Young on the show, uh, and he talked about some great ways that he recovers from matches. What's your... What's your method? Are you, obviously we talked about ice baths. Is there anything else that's kept you in the game for so long that maybe uh, someone like us, like Jonathan and I just, we should do a little more research about? Yeah. I mean, it's tough. I, I, you know, it's something that it takes time, but I think it's just become such a priority for everybody. And that's why you see people becoming, or sorry, having, you know, good results and success much later in their careers. I I don't know what people did in the nineties, but I just feel like that's become such a, a, a place of focus for everybody. But, you know, you, you, we're doing twice as much time warm up and cool down as the actual practice at this point, or at least I am, you know, uh, it's like an hour on the table beforehand, make sure everything's loose, you know, everything's functioning properly. And if there's a little bit, Oh, that's a little tight. Let's get it, you know, make sure it's, you know, it, it's, it's working all right. It's firing properly. So that when you go out on the court, you're not compensating with something else. Cause that's usually what causes injuries, you know, and then afterwards, like you said, everyone kind of has their own deal. Um, for me, the, the ice baths seem to work. For some, it doesn't work at all. Some, some people just do, you know, stretches, massages, and everyone has everyone kind of has their own, you know, what works for them. But uh, for me, it's uh, it's a lot of time for sure. Hashtag massage life. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's a lot of time. Yeah. Jump in the <laughs> ice bath, though. That's no that people people love to think, oh, we just get treatment and these these sort of happy, fun massages all the time. It's it's not that, unfortunately. <laughs> torturous, torturous. You come back and you win the title out of nowhere again in 2015, beating Ivo Karlovich on grass. No small feat. Absolutely. Yeah. What's the mentality after winning the second title, Raj? I would think the first titles, obviously, yes, weight is off my shoulders. I won my first title. That's that's amazing. But is two titles just validation, really? 
Um, yeah, I guess validation is, is tough. It was a really nice thing for me to sort of have more than one, if you will. So I guess it was just personal validation. I got pretty close in Newport. I think I can't remember what year it was. I lost to Leighton in the semis one year and, uh, you know, had a couple other chances in, I think LA, I made the a, a semi, maybe that same year. I can't remember. Anyway, had a couple more chances. So it was like, I felt like I was good enough to, to do it, but then to actually, you know, get through and, and win a second one on tour. I just feel like it, I separated myself a little bit from a group of people that had won one and, you know, proved to myself that it wasn't a fluke. So, yeah. Not a fluke at all. A nice cherry on the top of that singles career. So well done. All right, Raj, we're going to stick with you. It's your third question. It's your last question. So here we go. You're a Grand Slam champion, Rajiv Ram, two Australian Open doubles titles and that US Open final with Coco Vandeweghe we spoke about earlier. We'll be cheering for you again as you aim for your third straight Australian Open title down under. This question is Grand Slam themed in honor of your success. Let's test your memory, Raj. If we add men's and mixed... You've played in 16 Grand Slam quarterfinals in your career thus far. Which of the following opponents have you never played in a Grand Slam or mixed quarterfinal match? Wow. Okay. Is it A, Mike Bryan, B, Annalena Gronefeld, <laughs> C, Jamie Murray, D, Barbara Krejcikova, or E, Robert Farah? Okay. This has to be in the quarterfinals. You had to have played this person in the quarterfinals. Oh. 16 Grand Slam quarterfinals. I mean, I had to make it a little, you know what? These have been going so easy. It's your life, Raj. I mean, you're, you should have just like speed the plow through this. I'm, I'm... See, Raj knows you're tricky with your questions. Yeah. Okay. So Mike, Mike Bryan, Jamie Murray, Barbara, and then who are the other ones? Oh, Rob. Okay. Oh, are we Rob? We're just buddies with him. It's just Rob Farah. Yeah. I love him. <laughs> it's just Rob. And then Gronefeld. Okay. Well, I'm going to say... Oh man, I'm gonna say you played them all. I have played them all. <laughs> yeah, no, I know I played them all, and I, I remember playing. I remember playing Mike, Mike, and Bob in in more than one unfortunate Grand Slam quarterfinal for me. So I'm gonna take Mike out. Um, I know Rob Farah and Grunfeld played together some. I don't remember if I played him in a quarterfinal somewhere or not. Jamie, I feel like I would have for sure played him in a quarterfinal at this point. So I'm gonna say, oh man, I'm gonna say Grunfeld. Because oh no, we maybe we played in Australia. Ah, stick with Gronefeld. It's Gronefeld. There we go. All right, we're. All- <laughs> Is it really? Sorry for taking so long. <laughs> you played her in two Slam semifinals. That's semifinals. That's okay. Yeah, there we go. Man, and I played. I played Barbara in a quarterfinal. In a quarter. At U.S. Open in 2016. Too good. Very fun. I know. I love it. Uh, you had me going there. I was sorry for the trickery, guys. All right, take us through, please that last Australian Open 2020, that match point, how awesome did that feel? You win your first men's Grand Slam title. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was it was great. I, there's, there's no two ways around it. I mean, we, we I started to feel like we've played that level of tennis um, kind of in the back end of 2019, and I thought we were that good enough to to win it. We, we had a couple of really tough losses in 2019 in the Slams. I mean, we lost to Herbert Mahout in Australia. We lost in the French in a tough match. We lost to Wimbledon in a fifth-set tiebreaker, the first one ever. And then we lost the US Open in a third-set tiebreaker, all to teams that were really good. And it was good quality matches. We just didn't quite get over the hump. So felt like we started to really play well at the back end of 2019 and really put it together and just you know it, it, it was validating it was great but i also felt like we were ready for it you know you played the australian duo in the final seville and purcell you were the favorites in that match 
was that more nerve wracking knowing that you're going into that thinking that you should win this match? Yeah, a little bit, but you know what, funnily enough, the year before in the mix final, we played wild cards as well. And I think that really helped me actually, because it was, it was the same kind of feeling the year before it was like, uh, you know, you, it was at the time I didn't, hadn't won a grand slam. So, you know, albeit it wasn't, it was mixed and not men's doubles, but it was the same deal. Barbara and I were seated second or third. I can't remember. We were definitely the favorites going in playing wild cards and Australian wild cards, which makes all the difference in Australia. I mean, obviously. Yeah, exactly. Australian wild cards nonetheless. And I remember being a bit nervous and, you know, we, we just kind of did our thing and we, we got through that match and it was definitely nervous after we won our semi match and we had a couple of days to think about it, but it really helped me that I had the experience the year before to be very honest. And it felt like in 2019 in mix, you might've been a little shaky because that first set was a, a tie break. And after you got through that, you like, yeah, sort of coasted six, one in the second set against those Aussies 2019. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, for sure. When you're in a situation like that, it's, it's always tough to kind of come out of the blocks and just be that much better. Cause obviously even though they're wild cards or whatever, maybe they're not ranked as high, but they've done bloody well to get to that stage. You know, they're not playing they're They've beaten some good teams and they're playing well. So it's not like they're just going to come out and, you know, they're going to feel pretty good about their chances as well. So it, it was a good experience. Obviously, 2019 with Barbara, you handled the crowd very well. You mentioned beating the Australian team in the final. That match point, you threw your arms up in the air. You were smiling. Barbara looked like she was ecstatic as well. What an accomplishment to win your first Grand Slam. Anything that you remember from that match? Obviously, it's something that you tried to attain for many years. Yeah, no, it, it really was. And I think like Barbara, I mean, she's had such a great doubles career already at such a young age. I mean, I don't know how many slams she's won, but she'd been in that position, you know, a lot before. She was probably the youngest on the court or maybe second youngest. I don't know, but she was definitely the most experienced at that level. And so just kind of trying to feed off of what she was bringing to the table and, and just her level and how calm she was. And, you know, we sort of had had that similar feeling to how Joe and I were this year, where we just felt like we, we deserved to be there and we just needed to, you know, do what we do and, and we were going to be fine. How do you find your partners? What's important to you in, in looking? You've played with several people over the years now. What's what's the thing that you look for in a doubles partner? You know, I, the more I do it, the more I realize it's, it's more just like a friendship or a relationship or even a marriage, to be honest. Like, I mean, you, you spend so much time with this person. So it's just it's just about kind of the, the chemistry comes first. You know, do you get along with the person? Are you able to, I would say that the best thing I can do is make my, my partner play really well. Because, you know, if I can say something or do something that makes him or her play well, that makes my job on the court a lot easier, you know? So I think it's someone you can relate to and, someone for you to have some common ground with. And and I think uh, before all the X's and O's of forehands and backhands and serves and returns, it's more important that you can actually find someone you can talk with well and you know, kind of have that chemistry with. Are you the strategist in the duo? Is that something that you like to take the lead with or is it more equal? It's more equal or more the other way. I'm, I'm sort of the, the ball hitter, if you will. Someone tells me where to hit it and I can usually hit it there pretty well. Mm. But uh, I prefer if somebody else kind of comes up with a strategy unless there's something that I see or that I think of maybe, but I'm, I'm not usually the one that uh, as much as strategy. I, I, I more think about the, the, the new other nuances. Like if you can get a guy to maybe not play as well for some other reason, you know, if you will. So, you know, bother him in some way. Not gamesmanship but you know not tennis so much so if you had to guess is there a player in your career that you feel like you've played the most in doubles feels like i played the brian so much because i just lost so many times you know <laughs> what's it what's it like playing against the brian brothers i mean they, they as much credit as they get they don't get enough you know i mean they've been so especially in american tennis you hear about how americans men's tennis was so bad for so long you had how it's still bad and you have these guys that are just literally winning at will I know it's not singles but I mean they're broken every record there is and just watching them do their thing I mean it, it, it they're the guys that I look for now I 
you know, to learn from uh, how did you guys do this? What can I learn from you? I called, to be honest, I called Bob after, uh, during the middle of the pandemic saying, Hey, listen, what do you think? What can I do? What, you know, I've, I've won a slam now. How can I keep this going? What did you guys do for 15 years to do this? And he was super helpful with some insight and stuff like that, but it's, it's really pretty amazing to watch them and to, to know that I got to play them so many times. It's pretty cool. Great you say that because obviously the Bryan brothers, as we know, have really transformed the status of doubles in making it more aware to the public as well. In the past 20 years, doubles has seen a reinvention for sure, Raj. Uh, are you a fan of the abbreviated scoring format and the Champions tiebreak? I'm a huge fan of the abbreviated scoring format. I would rather have us be able to play full games where there's no deuce point. I think that gets a bit hokey mm-hmm. sometimes. You can lose your serve in an unlucky fashion. 99 times out of 100, I feel like the better team wins a 10-point breaker. And I think for me, it's one of the most exciting things that we as a tennis tour bring to the table. Like if you watch a 10-point tiebreaker in doubles in a big moment, you know, in a big match, I think it's super exciting. Very exciting, right? We love it. Oh, yeah. I would love to see two full regular sets. And, and if it's a set all, then you play a 10-point breaker for the third. I think that'd be great. What's your opinion on the traditional singles player playing doubles? You had this amazing, exciting match that comes to mind in 2019 at Queens Club. You play Andy Murray and Feliciana Lopez. Andy's back from hip surgery. Everyone's cheering for him. It's absolutely crazy. Are doubles players more territorial in those type of matches when you're playing against two established singles players that are like, hey, what are you doing? playing doubles or is it more like business as usual are we territorial i don't think we're territorial but we certainly get up for it you know like andy murray still andy murray at the end of the day like we're all tennis fans and you know the guy's one of the greatest in dubai earlier this year right before the pandemic uh, joe and i played novak and marin chilich you know so it's like i'm not saying that i've got extra motivation to beat them because i'm a doubles player and they're a singles player i've just got extra motivation because it's an you know, it's an unbelievable chance to play, you know, one of the greatest of all time. So I kind of felt the same way playing the Bryans, to be honest, or, or playing like a guy like Danny Nestor or, or someone that I really looked up to or, or admired their career. So I don't think it's like a double singles thing. And I think the top guys do a great job of when they step on the court, they give it their, their full effort. And we as doubles players really appreciate that. I, I love it when they play. A legend is a legend, right? And there we go. All right. Jonathan, your last question. I have all this prowess about his career that I have not been asked tonight. You're such a big fan. So I know I'm asking you. 20 titles with 12 partners. I knew the Eric Buderak answer and so on. You know what? I honestly, going into this, I knew that you knew so much that I felt like I had to up my ante tonight because I didn't want to make it too easy for you. I really did. All right. So here's redemption. Last question here. You probably guessed this was going to be an Olympics question because we haven't chatted about it yet. We're going to finish up today and wrap up. We couldn't leave today without talking about that legendary All-American mixed final with Rajiv and Venus Williams versus Jack Sock and his hometown Wisconsin buddy, Bethany Maddox-Sands in Rio. Here is your final question. I gave Raj a multiple choice, Jonathan, so I'm going to give you a multiple choice as well, okay? Which country was not one of the teams that hashtag Team Van defeated on their way to the gold medal at the 2016 Rio Olympics. Was it A, India, B, Italy, C, Belarus, or D, the Netherlands? Which team did they not play on their way to that gold medal match? Which team did Venus and Raj not play? He's repeating the question. He's getting, he's getting smarter here. <laughs> um, I know they played India because I remember you played Sonia Mirza, and it was probably interesting to just play Team India even as well. So that has to be, that had to be kind of strange at the time. I think you didn't play. I don't think you played Belarus. That's what I'm going to go with. Raj, do you know the answer to that? That is absolutely correct. Yes. (laughs) There you go on the board. 
I love that you have this memory. Some players just can't remember anything. Really? Yeah, you're good at this. I like this game. It's, it's your life, so I would expect you to be good yeah. at it. But some people, well, you're not exactly. Yeah, yeah. You're asking me of, uh, events that aren't exactly, you know, Elkin Futures or whatever I played. You know, <laughs> true. You had some very tight matches throughout that Olympics. 10-8 in the first round against the Dutch team. 10-3 in the third against Mirza and Bopana. I know that match, Jonathan just alluded to it. Mirza and Bopana made major headlines in India at the time, obviously because the winning team would be playing for the gold medal. Huge deal. As the most successful Indian-American tennis player of all time, did you feel that attention from the media during the Olympics? Oh, yeah. I, oh, man. Tough, tough question. I didn't really feel the attention from the media per se, but I, I guess I knew what it meant to them. And not that it didn't mean it as much to me. It absolutely did. But I, I knew what it meant to them because I know the history of that country. I, I'm very well versed in it being first generation. So I know what the Olympic Games means, you know, any, any, any games like that, Asian Games, Olympic Games over there. And then I knew kind of what the situation that they were in as far as more than they were going to be playing for a gold medal. Whoever won that match was going to be guaranteed a medal, which, you know, India doesn't win medals. You know, they haven't won as many medals, you know, over the last years. I don't even know how many, but it's not, not many at all. So they would have been very, you know, it would have been a very big thing. So I knew that, but you know, we're all competitors at the end of the day and it's nothing personal. And I was, was very happy to get through that. You've inspired so many young kids and, and a lot of people all over the world. When you travel to India and you've played ATP tournaments, what's your reception been like? Yeah, it's been really great, actually. I, I wish uh, there was an opportunity to, to do that a little bit more. Um, I love playing there. I love going there. My family's from there. That's still where my heritage is, and it's always going to be, you know, so I, I've really enjoyed it. If I've inspired anyone, I, I, I certainly am humbled by that, if you will. But I love I love the opportunities that I've gotten to play over there. And yeah, people were really gracious. I mean, look, I, I, I look like them, and, you know, they see somebody else that kind of, you know, that fits the mold and, and is maybe playing all right. So I, I, I certainly um, took to that a lot. It was an exciting match. I know Jonathan and I feel the same way when it comes to the mixed draws, especially big mixed draws like this. We can't wait to see who's going to end up with who. Oh, yeah. The Olympics are coming up again. It's really exciting from a fan perspective. What are the nerves like in a gold medal match of the Olympic Games? I feel like, Jonathan, if you or I were playing with Venus, she would have had to have slapped us at some point. I don't know. Did Venus Williams hit you, Raj? Did she ever hit you? No, she, she didn't hit me, Okay, but it was like the level that of sort of intensity that she brought taught me a lot about how to be like a really good player. I, I got to say, I'm not, you know, people say, oh, you know, you rub shoulders with these people and super successful. Like that's no joke, you know, like yeah, I, a quick story. I know we've been on this a while, but I'll just, I'll tell you, we were in the first round of that match against the Netherlands and we were down a set and it was like, whatever, even ish in a second. And she just turns over and she's like, I don't know why they hate me. We're having a totally normal match, you know? And she was, she just says this. And I'm like, wow. What? And then, you know, okay, we, we end up winning this match. And I was like, what was all that about? She's like, you know, sometimes when I need to really get it going, I just, I just make it personal, you know, in my head. And I don't know if anyone saw that Jordan documentary or whatever, but it was really, it was eerily similar to how Michael Jordan would talk about how he made things personal. And, you know, I, I can't say that I'm, I'm a pro at it, but man, that was, it was really neat to see that up close and, and how she just made her, willed herself to rise to the occasion and just be more intense and, and play better. As soon as the match was over, it wasn't nothing personal with the opponents at all. Like nothing, nothing happened. Happened, you know it was incredible yeah but it was just it's it's so it was so cool to be able to be in a competitive environment with someone that was that's been that good you know yeah a gold medalist of course you know she brought the yeah. experience your olympic experience in a nutshell incredible the best thing i've ever done in my tennis life did you get to enjoy outside of tennis did you get to see anything else 
Yeah, one of the cool things was since we did pretty well, we actually got to you know hang around there for a little while. So I got to go watch a, a men's basketball game and uh, watch Phelps win one of his umpteenth gold medals in a relay and a 400 relay. Watch the U.S. win that. So watch two events, watch the U.S. win both. And opening ceremonies was like I still think I still get chills thinking about it. Walking out and you know seeing all those athletes that full stadium and yeah, just really hope I get to get in the crack at it this year. Hopefully it's going to happen. You're the number one American in doubles. Hopefully we see you in doubles and mixed. Have you thought about who you'd want to play with? We don't have to make an announcement, but it's obviously something you're thinking about. This could be your last Olympics. Absolutely. You know, and the thing about the Olympics is it's actually more of a, a group decision than, uh, you know, like a me and the other person decision. So the team captains are involved and the other people. So it's not it's not just as easy as me saying, well, look, I want to play with this person. It, there's a bit more to it. So yeah, I have, you know, a few ideas. Obviously you mentioned Jack did, you know, he's, he's done great in doubles in, in his career. And, you know, that'd be something, you know, Austin Krychek's another one who's yeah. done pretty well over the last years and is now focusing just on doubles. As far as mix goes, I don't even know who's going to be on the women's team, but you have obviously Bethany who's had great experience, but then you have so many young players like Coco Goff and Katie McNally. And, you know, but then you have people like Coco Vandeway, Sloan Stevens, and Nicole Melichar is another one who's done well in doubles. It's a whole long list. So Or Serena, you know, Serena wants to play. Maybe that's or Serena gonna- or Venus. Yeah. Don't, don't know if they're going to play or going to want to play. So, I mean, I think it's a long way off still, but let's see. Before we close out, I wanted to highlight some of your great wins. You have two Masters 1000 titles, one at Indian Wells, one in Paris. Are there any doubles titles aside from from Australia on another level that are really important to you that have meant something over the years? Well, you touched on the one in Chennai, obviously, with that being my first. So that's right up there. Uh, Indian Wells was my first master's title. So that was pretty special. And Raven and I won that one together. We, we actually beat Rafa and Novak separately in that tournament. So I think they were probably number one and two in the world at the time. And so, yeah, that, that was up there. And then, yeah, Paris was uh, was a really tough year in 2018. Had, my dad just got diagnosed with cancer that year. And so it was, a, it was an up and down year. I didn't have a, a steady partner. So that was the last term of the year to, to end it with a win like that. It, it gave me a push in an next year let's say really great really great story all right we're going to end today with you've got mail two fan questions one uh from miriam from vienna austria she asks as a former atp council member what are you most proud of during your tenure and as far as the state of the men's game today where do you think the new council should focus their attention wow we're getting political huh uh, the thing I'm most proud of is we were kind of in the in the planning stages of the ATP Cup, which unfortunately hit a roadblock this year due to the pandemic, but it, it did get off last year. And as I said, I think team events are so cool in tennis and it was just, it'd be a great way to bring a whole new bunch of fans in. So I was part of the group that sort of was discussing some of that stuff. And, uh, you know, I feel like we were part of the initial getting the snowball, getting the momentum going, getting the ball rolling with that. So that would probably be the one thing on my own you know, time on the council. And what was the second part? Second part is uh, Miriam's asking, where should the, in the state of the men's game today, where do you think the new council should focus their attention? I think it's easy to say from this side, but I think we do a terrible job in tennis of listening to the fans and making it a fan-friendly environment or even thinking about tennis from a fan's perspective. You know, you go to a basketball game and you get to go have your hot dog and your popcorn and you have all kinds of stuff. It's, it's quite a thing. You don't have to like basketball for anything and it's still a fun deal, you know? And, and I don't know what like the, what the European sports are like, but I think if we could think about tennis from the fans' perspective, some, something as silly as letting people come in before the changeover happens, you know, I think things like that could just help us 
continue to progress as far as, you know, keeping up with the demands of the sport. Yeah. I mean, for the tennis fan and for the casual sports fan who happens to come to a tennis match and then they're like, you're going to hold me out here for 15 more minutes. Yeah. My wife went to go watch a women's tournament here down in Northern California as a, as a fan. And she was like, well, I'm never doing that again. That was terrible. You know, like if for lack of a better word, maybe she wasn't that dramatic about it, but she's like, you know, it just was such a worse experience than what she's used to having a normal credential. I think we could make it a little bit more accommodating. So a casual sports fan would want to come, you know, when we do have crowds again, come watch one of our events. Love it. The last question goes to my good friend, Jonathan Scott. Wow, the, the last word here. Raj, I guess my question for you would be, there are a few things we touched on during this conversation, which has been robust, has been great, maybe more than an hour even. But I guess in place of one or two questions earlier that I almost thought to ask, what would you say that at this point, you know, age uh, 36, 37 in March, what are you playing for at this point? You've won men's doubles majors. You've won a mixed slam. You're chasing, I mean, you're kind of just chasing your personal history or that personal validation you talked about earlier. What are you playing for at this juncture of your career and for the rest of your career? Good question. I mean, like I said, I've been one of the really lucky few that has gotten to enjoy playing. And so I have always said, I'm going to stop playing when it stops being fun, you know? And I think it's just I'm really honestly playing because I, I love it. Um, I love competing. I love trying to still get better. I love trying to do things. And I think winning majors is addicting, for lack of a better word, or putting yourself in that position to win majors is addicting to, to try and, you know, we, we didn't win any other ones this past year, but we made the semis of the US Open in the quarters in Paris. And it's like, you're close. And it's like, oh, I want another chance. And I want another chance. And being in the contention of world number one, you know, or or uh, putting ourselves in the position to win big titles, not only Grand Slams, but Masters events. I mean, that, that feels feeling is is pretty unique and i think um that's what we're all chasing after and, and i'm no different you're fine wine rajiv ram <laughs> you just keep getting better with age where hopefully we'll see you until you know who knows when but i can't thank you enough for joining us for this hour both of you what a fun hour plus yeah i want to thank my guests for joining us today we learned an absolute lot about rajiv you can find jonathan on instagram and twitter at john scott nine or you can check out his articles on www.baseline.tennis.com thank you my friend so good to talk to you today even better to see you always our guest today can be found on instagram at rajiv ram 318 or on Twitter at Rajiv Ram. Also check out his charity, entourageforkids.org. I can't thank you enough. I really hope that you bring home that third title that you want so badly. We'll be cheering you on for sure. Thanks a lot. While you're on Instagram, shoot me a DM at John Garika. Let me know who you'd like to see next on an episode. And don't forget to follow us at Fantastic Tennis Pod or on Twitter at Fan Tennis Pod. My name is John Garika. Thank you for listening. This has been fantastic. Fantastic.